BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys episode 168. Duel. Aaron Burr versus Alexander Hamilton. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is sponsored by Audible, the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, phone, or MP3 player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a solo show this week as Tom is away preparing for his upcoming nuptials. Now, I'm releasing this new podcast on July 11th, 2014. I'm date stamping this here. Exactly 210 years ago from the event that I'm about to speak about. In 1804, two of America's most prominent politicians took little boats from their homes in lower Manhattan, crossed the Hudson River, marched to a clearing in Weehawken, New Jersey, and promptly shot at each other. Alexander Hamilton was America's first Treasury Secretary and once the right-hand man of George Washington. Aaron Burr was actually the sitting Vice President of the United States and the former Attorney General of the State of New York. The two men dueled here in New Jersey over bruised reputation, a simmering, vindictive hatred that rose up to trigger an antiquated code of honor. In the end, one man, Alexander Hamilton, would fall to fatal wounds, but the other, Aaron Burr, would live on for most as a national pariah. You've probably heard this story many times before in history classes, so I'm going to do two specific things with this show here. I'm going to tie it to New York and explain how the city and its two most prominent lawyers were perceived in 1804, give you some coordinates here in downtown Manhattan where you can actually go and trace the steps of Hamilton and Burr, and then I'll ponder a question thousands before have tried to answer. Why? Why did they do it? America changed forever that day, that cool, breezy morning of July 11th, 1804, on the dueling grounds of Weehawken. Alexander Hamilton was born in the Caribbean, shipped off to New York as a teenager, studied at King's College, which is the roots of today's Columbia University, fought in the Revolutionary War aside the General George Washington, 
forged the foundations of American democracy with the Federalist Papers, helped draft the United States Constitution, then became America's first Treasury Secretary under now President of the United States, George Washington. And all of that before he was 40 years old. But by 1804, Hamilton was a very disliked politician, pretty much on the outs with almost every major political force of the day. He was once the leader of the Federalist Party, formed it actually, promoting a strong central government with a robust fiscal control over the loose confederations of 13 states. He managed to anger almost every single person we call a founding father, and a sex and blackmail scandal in 1791 soiled his reputation. The turning point for Hamilton, well, for America actually, was the election of 1800, pitting the second American president, John Adams, against his vice president, Thomas Jefferson. This is a watershed moment for politics and considered the inception of squabbling partisan politics. Hamilton was already viciously anti-Adams and had even tried to manipulate the president's cabinet for much of its tenure. He now excoriated the president and tried to get a more tolerable Federalist into office. That failed, allowing Adams to fall to his Republican challenger, Jefferson. Well, almost. This is where Aaron Burr comes in. Burr was born in Newark and, like Hamilton, also served under George Washington and, like Hamilton, became a successful lawyer in New York. While Hamilton was in the George Washington administration as Treasury Secretary, Burr was becoming a power player in New York politics, becoming first New York's Attorney General, then a Senator, amassing power through a burgeoning social organization called the Tammany Society. Yes, this would, of course, evolve into the powerful Democratic machine Tammany Hall. Now, you may remember Burr from his appearance in our ghost show last year, um, as he and his daughter Theodosia allegedly haunt a West Village restaurant. In 1794, he bought an old mansion called Richmond Hill. Today, that would be in the area of the West Village at Varick and Charlton Streets, a big, beautiful home that was so expensive to run that it nearly bankrupted Burr. Now, as I said, Adams was defeated in the presidential election by Thomas Jefferson, but Aaron Burr almost became president instead. In an electoral catastrophe that was quickly corrected by law, the vice president of the United States was the one who received the second largest amount of votes. Party leaders thought they had planned it so that Burr would be the vice president, but a vote snafu actually caused Burr to tie with Jefferson. Burr was accused of slightly disrupting that process. I mean, this is an era when campaigning and electioneering, well, they were not seen as gentlemanly pursuits. Certainly they weren't seen as American, which seems pretty ridiculous today, right? Although Jefferson ultimately won, of course, Burr was tarnished in the new president's eyes and distrusted for the rest of the administration. So here we are. It's now 1801. Hamilton and the Federalists have been politically neutered. Most everyone is over Alexander Hamilton, while Burr is on the out with the president of the United States and his ardent Republican base. I should add right here that the Republican Party that I'll be speaking to is actually has little relationship with the current Republican Party. It actually has more in common with the Democrats. I would actually say that most of the men that we refer to today as founding fathers were tired of each other by this point. But with all this vitriol flying around, nobody hated Hamilton and Burr more than each other. As two of New York's most prominent and most famous lawyers, they had fought against and alongside each other in court for almost two decades, including one as late as 1800, representing a man named Levi Weeks, the son of a wealthy builder in a murder case. That also happened to be featured in one of our prior Ghost Story podcasts. That was episode 65 for more information. 
Their law offices were actually not that far from each other. Burr's was on 5 Broadway, and Hamilton's was on Garden Street, which is today Exchange Place. That's really just a couple blocks away from each other. You know, New York wasn't that big then, residing as it was, mostly below Canal Street. They had a lot in common, and they shared much here in New York. But Hamilton was a true Federalist of nationalist virtues, while Burr was a Republican, and one with shifting allegiances at that. As author Ron Chernow wrote, quote, Where Hamilton was often more interested in policy than politics, Burr seemed interested only in politics. Alexander Hamilton was a genius with a sassy mouth. He could get nasty in his opposition to men of opposing parties, of men he considered shallow, and saw Burr as a cheap opportunist with no moral center, quote, unprincipled both as a public and private man. I take it he is for or against nothing but as it suits his interest and ambition, unquote. In this period, calling a man ambitious was almost the worst thing you could say. Quote, if we have an embryo Caesar in the United States... Tis Burr. He wrote further, quote, If he can, meaning Burr, he will certainly disturb our institutions to secure himself permanent power, and with that, wealth. Now, most of the words that come down from Hamilton are from hundreds of private letters, while Burr's correspondence was mostly through that with his daughter, Theodosia. But they got their messages out in other ways, chiefly through their own newspapers, political organs that they could control invisibly under pseudonyms or employing pliant editors of like political beliefs. You are probably familiar with Hamilton's personal paper, formed in 1801, the New York Evening Post, and its first editor, William Coleman, for this is the basis of the modern New York Post today. But Aaron Burr also had a newspaper himself called the Morning Chronicle, which embedded favorable political views within the news of the day. His editor was named Peter Irving, and Peter often employed his teenage brother, Washington Irving, as a columnist, starting what would eventually become this young man's career as America's first great writer. In 1802, I, I like to think maybe thumbing his nose at Aaron Burr's dumpy old Richmond Hill, Alexander Hamilton would build a home for his family several miles out of town called the Grange or the Hamilton Grange. Today, that's in the neighborhood appropriately named Hamilton Heights. I mention it because they would also burden Hamilton's finances in much of the same way that the upkeep of Burr's home would damage his own finances. The men I'm describing here are very, very much in debt and very stressed out. Burr actually suffered from migraines throughout most of his life, which he very much thought through here now in the spring of 1804, when a new political prize opened up for him. Now, just earlier, I said that President Jefferson was, was done with Aaron, and really, Burr beseeched Jefferson for a political appointment when his term as vice president was finished, but the president refused. Burr was quickly ostracized by his party, and a new name was offered up as vice president for Jefferson's second term. We've mentioned his name a few times on this show, George Clinton, the man who was, at this time, the governor of New York. But that meant, of course, that the governor's seat in Albany would soon be open. And Burr was very popular with many New Yorkers at this time, both with those upstate and even with some from the opposing party, the Federalists. Many, including Burr himself, thought that he might be able to bridge the gap between these two parties. You know, this partisan politics was still kind of a new thing back then. So they were looking for someone who could be a unifying voice and to perhaps create a new coalition. 
politics in New York at this time was controlled by the powerful Clinton family, Governor George here, and of course, his nephew, DeWitt Clinton, who was the mayor of New York. Perhaps even Burr could become the new hope for the Federalist Party, a bold and admittedly ironic choice to return Federalist values to national and local politics. But Hamilton, of course, well, I mean, he fancies himself as the leader of the Federalist Party. And here was this man, Burr, this devious, black-eyed snake in the grass of shifting loyalties. I mean, even Hamilton's philosophical enemy, Thomas Jefferson, had rejected him. Well, naturally, Hamilton ramped up his rhetoric again, both invisibly as the hand behind the Evening Post and privately in letters and private dinners. While having a lovely dinner with the judge John Kent in his home in Albany, Hamilton launched into a tirade that was later captured in a letter by an acquaintance, Dr. Charles Cooper. Quote, General Hamilton and Judge Kent have declared, in substance, that they looked upon Mr. Burr to be a dangerous man and one who ought not to be trusted with the reins of government. And then he added, I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr. This letter that Mr. Cooper wrote, found itself into a newspaper in April the following month, and a copy of that newspaper found its way to Richmond Hill in late June. It was then that Burr discovered these accusations, which today maybe doesn't sound like the worst thing that politicians have ever said to each other, but in the time between Hamilton's dinner, which was in April, and now, which was late June, Aaron Burr had lost the election for governor, lost it by the biggest margin up to that time, and lost it to a political nobody named Morgan Lewis, a candidate that was hand-chosen by George Clinton, who must have delighted in seeing the defeat of a man whose job on the national stage he was about to step into. Burr put down the paper, summoned his friend William Venness, and set in motion one of the darkest days in American political history. Now, less than three years before this, back on November 20th, 1801, two young men got into a heated exchange of political words at the Park Theater during a production of the hit play, The West Indian. If you remember from our Astor Place Riots podcast, people just talked and screamed and did whatever they wanted while these shows were going on. The insults questioning the man's integrity soon escalated, and the two young men decided to duel. Three days later, the men rode out to a low outcropping in New Jersey to an area called Weehawken, from the Lenape phrase for rocks that look like trees. The two young men aimed pistols at each other and shot. One man fell over mortally wounded and died later that day. This man's name was Hamilton, Philip Hamilton, the eldest son of Alexander Hamilton. Not only would Philip's father see the very same dueling ground less than three years later, He would even use the same pistols. Dueling seems like a deplorable, even idiotic practice today, more suited as a shootout in a Western movie than something respectable citizens participated in. 
it was not standard practice 210 years ago. It was illegal in several states, including New York. That's why they were often held over in Weehawken, where it was banned in New Jersey, but the regulation was never so strictly enforced. Or just think of it like this. The world was a much smaller place then. We have so many more ways of dealing with defamation and slander than they had back then. We can defend our reputations today almost instantaneously. But back then, disparaging words could linger. Entering into a duel required courage, and just participating in that could clear your name, at least somewhat. Although planned in secret, words spread of the duels whenever they happened, and often enhanced the reputations of both participants. It was also very popular with military men and with mouthy politicians, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr fit both of those roles. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Duels had specific rules laid down in what was classically known as the Code Duello. Once the offending incident was announced, there was almost a methodical way of building towards the duel. In the case of Burn Hamilton, what followed was a series of letters back and forth, delivered by the two men who would serve as their seconds or assistants in the duel. For Burr, it was the aforementioned William Van Ness, and for Hamilton, Nathaniel Pendleton. Missives were delivered from Richmond Hill to Hamilton at his townhouse at 54 Cedar Street, and then, of course, up at his home at the Grange, 
All the while, Hamilton's family never knew what horrible event was in their future. It was all carefully concealed. It should come as no surprise that Hamilton refused to apologize for any of his words and even antagonize Burr for his responses. I especially like that he put so much focus onto the word despicable in his obstinate letters back to Burr. He wrote, quote, "'Tis evident that the phrase still more despicable admits of Infinite shades from the very light to the very dark. How am I to judge the degree intended? Unquote. Or in short, you don't know what I was going to say. Needless to say, this attitude only served to escalate the matter so that the duel became almost inevitable. The deed was planned for July 11th, many days after it was agreed to, as Hamilton wished to clear his court docket in a gesture of goodwill to his clients. Hamilton proclaimed to confidants that he had no intention of firing at the vice president. Burr, it is said, actually practiced even setting up a target behind his house at Richmond Hill to sharpen his aim. This detail, however, might be part of the great number of disparaging rumors which plagued Burr after the fact. Burr and Hamilton broke bread for the final time at Francis Tavern on the 4th of July, 1804, at a meeting of the Society of the Cincinnati, an organization for veterans of the Revolutionary War. The two kept the secret of the duel from everyone in the room. John Trumbull later said, quote, The singularity of their manner was observed by all, but few had any suspicions as to the cause. One week later, July 11th, early morning around 5 a.m., with a cool breeze along the Hudson River, bursted out on a small boat from Richmond Hill with his second, Van Ness. Hamilton left, not from the Grange, but from his townhouse down at Cedar Street. Pendleton met him there, and the two departed for the shore, where they were met by oarsmen to row them across. Burr and Van Ness arrived at the Weehawken site first and began clearing brush away. Soon Hamilton and Pendleton arrived, and the two combatants chose their positions. A third man had joined Hamilton aboard his craft, the Dr. David Hossack. Hamilton's private doctor. These other men, by the way, were risking their careers and livelihood as this was technically an illegal act. Later, in fact, Vanessa and Pendleton would at first be charged as accessories to murder. At precisely 7 a.m., Hamilton and Burr raised their firearms, their bodies turned to the side, the slimmest silhouettes, to present forward as little body area as possible. Their seconds prepared the guns, and Pendleton read the rules. Hamilton then Put on his spectacles, the two lifted their weapons. As Pendleton said the word, present, the pistols were discharged, both pistols. For to this day, we don't know whether Hamilton had actually meant to fire, or if it were an involuntary reaction. Regardless, Hamilton fell to the ground. The bullet had ripped into his side, shattering a rib on the right side, tearing through organs and hitting his spine. This is a mortal wound, it is claimed, he said. Meanwhile, Burr had been spared, the bullet hitting a tree over his head. Van Ness quickly got Burr to the boat, and they sped away, back to his home at Richmond Hill. Dr. Hossack took the unconscious body of Hamilton back to the boat. They arrived back on the shore of Manhattan, to the estate of William Bayard. If you wanted to visit the approximate location of where Bayard's home is, it's in the meatpacking district around Jane Street. There's a plaque at 82 Jane Street that marks this mournful event, although technically the plaque is off by about a block or so. 
Hamilton was taken to Bayard's house and reclined on a bed on the second floor as Dr. Hasek grimly evaluated the wound. Hamilton screamed in pain and summoned the bishop Benjamin Moore himself to prepare a communion ritual for him. Moore was an Episcopal bishop, but also the president of Columbia College, embodying a reconciliation of both Hamilton's mind and spirit. The next morning, July 12th, his family arrived, Eliza and their seven children, and then a variety of guests rushing in to see Hamilton in these final moments. Most notable here was Governor Morris, the estate owner in the Bronx, several years before he would lead a committee to form Manhattan's grid plan in 1811. Morris said dramatically, quote, The scene is too powerful for me. I am obliged to walk in the garden to take breath, unquote. And so that afternoon, July 12th, at 2 p.m., Alexander Hamilton died, the man who helped create the founding documents of American democracy and the foundations of the country's financial might, a former soldier who died of a gunshot from a man who sat, at that very moment, just a short 15-minute walk away. Perhaps nobody but Hamilton himself could have foreseen the great outpouring of grief that filled the city. On July 14th, the day of his funeral, the entire city shut down. Thousands of people filled the streets to mourn and watch an elaborate funeral procession. His casket carried from today's Park Place, weaving down streets down to Trinity Church, followed by his family and Governor Morris in the carriage. Then all the students of Columbia College, then lining up were also the Tammany Society, basically all of those who had loved Alexander Hamilton and all of those who had once hated him arrived for the funeral. Governor Morris gave the eulogy, delicately dancing around Hamilton's various picadillos and, of course, the fact that he died in a duel. Burr, meanwhile, was holed up at his home in Richmond Hill, the city closing in around him. His supporters tried to circulate a more nuanced account of the duel. But people in their grief and outrage were sticking to the rumors, the story of Burr allegedly throwing a wild party at Richmond Hill to celebrate Hamilton's murder. One week after the funeral, on July 21st, Aaron Burr left Richmond Hill, never to return. Eventually, Richmond Hill was auctioned away to cover mounting debts, and the house was sold to John Jacob Astor, who chopped up the estate into lots, growing rich from Burr's misfortune. Burr's friends did manage, however, to save two things of great importance, his library and his wine collection. Burr rode down past Staten Island to the city of Perth Amboy in New Jersey, and then to Cranberry, New Jersey, for a few weeks. It seemed that each place he stayed would suffer from a poor reputation afterwards. The house in Cranberry, actually, was later claimed to be haunted. From a 1903 history, quote, after he left the house, ill luck befell all those who became inhabitants of it. In other words, Colonel Burr was such a hoodoo that he left a blight upon an entire house, although he occupied but a single room, unquote. But keep in mind, Burr was still vice president. On November 5th, 1804, he took his place at the head of the Senate, a greatly changed man. Remarkably, then, that February 1805, he conducted the impeachment trial of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase with such decorum and elegance, no one could fail to be impressed. In the shadow of this tragedy, many became sympathetic to Burr, at least here in D.C., where many were not sorry to see Alexander Hamilton ushered off the planet. Well, I'll fast forward here through Burr's tale past the time he 
wanted to form a new nation out west. Forward past the treason trials, past the death of his daughter Theodosa in a shipwreck, past his very weird and failed marriage with Eliza Jumel. And I'll stop on the day he died, September 14th, 1836, over 32 years after the duel, of which he was now sadly principally known for at this time. He spent his last lonely days in a boarding house in the Port Richmond neighborhood of Staten Island, hounded by pious ministers who wished to save his soul and release him from his crippling depression. For decades afterwards, guests would specifically ask to stay in the Burr Room for an evening. A sign even hung over the mantle that said, Aaron Burr died in this room. Oddly enough, a stranger, we don't know who, also lived at the boarding house at this time. And so when Aaron Burr died, the stranger suddenly appeared at the door, opened his satchel, and removed the materials to make a plaster death mask of the vice president. Well, according to Roadside America, Burr's death mask, or we believe to be the death mask, is in a small museum in West Virginia. The infamous dueling pistols are owned by J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, a bank which traces itself back to the old bank of the Manhattan Company, co-founded by none other than Aaron Burr himself. You can also find replicas of the two dueling pistols displayed at the New York Historical Society. And of course, you can go to Trinity Church Graveyard and find the impressive grave of Alexander Hamilton there, buried next to his wife. What hasn't been so carefully protected, of course, is the dueling ground itself. Two years after Hamilton's death, a monument in fact, it's not just a monument, it was an, it's an obelisk. Hmm? He wasn't a mason, however. Anyway, this monument, this obelisk, was placed on the spot, even as duels continued to be staged here for several decades afterwards. As you can imagine, the monument didn't make it very far. It was vandalized and eventually taken away. There was so little reverence for this space, 70 years later, that they plowed through it with railroad tracks, eradicating the dueling ground. But up on the hill a little further, in the 1890s, the city placed a noble bust of Hamilton there, and a boulder that was allegedly on the site. 40 years later, somebody took that bust and hurled it off the cliff. Hamilton replicas here cannot get a break. Today, you can visit Hamilton Park in Weehawken for a breathtaking view of New York City and see the current bust of Hamilton and a couple plaques that were newly placed here in 2004, the 200th anniversary of the duel. From New York City, you can take a ferry to a spot very close to the area if you'd like to check it out, and I'd recommend it. Very worth the trip, and the neighborhood of Weehawken here is gorgeous. For more stories on Hamilton and Burr and all the Revolutionary War era figures that I so like to obsess about, visit our blog, BarryBoysPodcast.com, and I'll have some dramatic illustrations of what the duel supposedly looked like. Now, if you'll notice, today's podcast was brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. I'm happy to say that we're providing a special offer. I've been totally downloading audiobooks since he's been a Bowery Boy sponsor, and I hope that you do too. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial if you go to audibletrial.com slash Boys. And I have two recommendations that are based around this podcast. They're both on Audible. The first one is Ron Chernow's immense, excellent biography of Alexander Hamilton. There's both the abridged and the unabridged version, if you dare, all 36 hours. 
But a second book is on there, which I also love. It's probably been less read because, of course, it's the book on Aaron Burr. It's Nancy Eisenberg's great fallen founder, The Life of Aaron Burr. So if you want to give him a second chance... And I recommend that you do because this is a muddy, complicated story. And no man was truly in the right or wrong here. So check those books out on Audible. Thank you very much for listening to my tale of the duel. I will be back in one month. Uh, Next time you hear from me, I will have just seen Tom Myers get married with my very own eyes. Perhaps I'll challenge him to a duel. Um, That would make a very special wedding, I'm sure. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.